So he had a meteoric rise to fame, this Jesus. Here was this uh, boy who grew up in a, a little village, pretty much unknown in the Galilee, worked with his dad in a carpenter shop, um, largely unknown. I don't know how he did in school, don't know how he was with his friends or anything like that. But all of a sudden, he came on the scene, and uh, one by one, he picked some people to hang out with, and he just said to them, you come follow me. Um, they were fishermen, they were tax collectors, they were everything else. And uh, he made promises to them that were vague, they, but they had a hope. They, they had a Jewish faith, and they had a hope that something was going to change in Israel, that uh, sooner or later the Romans would be uh, vanquished and that uh, the throne of David would be reestablished in Israel. And they had a notion that he could be the one who would lead. Um, and so they followed him. And indeed, as he traveled around the Galilee with these, this motley crew, um, people were pretty enamored of his teaching. And they were especially enamored of the miracles that he could pull, pull off. He, he could heal people. He could uh, feed 5,000 people all, you know, out of one boy's lunch. And so things were just on an incredible um, climb with this person's success and his notoriety. And so as the thousands and thousands and thousands of people kept following him, and uh, he would sometimes get so weary, he would have to get in a boat and cross the lake so they couldn't catch up to him, at least for a little while. With these thousands of people following him, his followers, they would kind of stand off to the side and, and have kind of knowing looks at each other, saying, yeah, we made the right decision. He, he, he may well be the one. Until he began to commit a bunch of faux pas. So as we saw last week, he, he began to be awkward. So he had, for example, this great opportunity, this great platform, because he was invited to a dinner party. And the dinner party was at a very well-known and respected Pharisee's home. And so at the dinner party, Jesus had the chance to pass out his business cards, right? To, to be um, the very gracious guest at this dinner party. And yet he began to say awkward things, like really awkward things. Um, he began to get after the other guests because he saw that they were taking the seats of honor. And so he challenged them and said, what are you doing? You know, because if, if somebody with more honor shows up, you're going to have to move. And that's going to be embarrassing. And he said to the host, like the guy that set up the dinner party, he said, if you really wanted to be a good host, you wouldn't invite these people. You wouldn't invite people that would invite you back because that's the reward. You would invite people that can't invite you back. And then maybe to try to, you know, kind of ease the tension, there was this little ingratiating man who said, how lovely it's going to be to sit at the kingdom feast with the Lord. And Jesus said, really? Here's a story for you. The Lord did set out a great feast, and he told people it was ready, and they said, oh, sorry, I'm busy right now. So he said, all right, that's it with you. Let's go find people that weren't invited and make them come and make them welcome, and the rest of you can go do whatever it was you were going to do. Awkward coughing around the table, awkward looking around at one another. And Luke tells us that the very next thing that went on is that Jesus um, looked around the crowd that was following him. The disciples, you know, applauding the fact that these people had caught on, that this was probably indeed the, the, the ruler of Israel. And he said, hey, you, all of you, 
Um, let me just suggest you go back home. The disciples are going, what? What did he just say? Jesus said, yeah, um, I think you should go back home. Well, that's not the way to start a movement. It's not the way to sustain a movement. And Luke is the one who tells us about this. So let's, let's just back up for a minute and ask, well, who was he? And why is he telling us the stories that he does? Because in this little series, we're just looking at the stories that Luke remembered Jesus telling um, and the things that Luke remembered Jesus doing. Luke was not there. So we, we should you know, be upfront with that. He was not an eyewitness. And at the beginning of the account that he gives in what we call the Gospel of Luke, he talks to someone called Theophilus, and he said, it's my purpose, Theophilus, to tell you exactly what happened um, from those who were there and from those who heard faithfully from them what the master said and what the master did. Now, Luke goes on and he writes a sequel, which is the book of Acts. And in that book, he says, um, the thing I wrote, first of all, was about what Jesus began to do, now I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. I have a hunch that the reason Luke remembers this particular thing that Jesus said is that he knew what was next. So by the time Luke is writing the things that Jesus said and this particular go-home story, he knew what had happened with those early followers of Jesus. And so it probably made sense for him to remember that this is what Jesus said when there were all of these people who were hanging out with him. So here's, here's this part of what Luke remembers from chapter 14. If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. <laughs> That's a lovely way to start a talk, isn't it? So you would think that Christian faith is about loving people. Jesus says, um, I'm here to tell you you have to hate people. So this is the, the New Living Translation that eases the language. It's not by comparison in the original what Jesus said. He doesn't say, by comparison, you must hate everybody else. He just says, you have to hate your parents, you have to hate your family, and by the way, you have to be willing to die. So people who had just heard about this great teacher who were ready to follow him were saying, is this the guy? This is the one you wanted me to come and follow? Well, he says, even your own life, otherwise you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace with the enemy while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. How many people are going to stay with the plan? Right? They, they just showed up to hear him teach. They showed up to see if he would do another cool miracle. They did show up to follow him if he was going to get the upper hand again for Israel. But now he's saying, what? If you want to follow me, you have to hate your family. That's what he said. If you want to follow me, you have to carry your cross daily. You have to pick up your cross daily. If you want to follow me, you have to give up everything you own. Now, 
why don't we get our bearings about all of this? We're saying that it's time for us to meet Jesus again for the first time. We're saying that there are a lot of trappings around the Christian faith. Trappings of, of politics, trappings of economics, trappings of sociology, all kinds of things that have collected around Christianity over the last hundreds and hundreds of years. So we want to clear that out of the way and go back to the source and ask, what was it that Jesus came to do? What was it he came to say? Who was he? And do we have a faithful record of what he did and what he said? Well, we do. We have a very clear record in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've been able to trace those records through all kinds of fragments of copies from scribes and scribes. So we're, we're absolutely confident that what we're told here by Luke is what Jesus said. We're, we're confident that what Jesus did in the narrative from Luke is in, in, indeed what he did. So I was feeling pretty good about all of, all of this when we were in the previous um, series about Mark, or from Mark, because Mark was basically saying everything that the religious leaders were saying, everything that those Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and what they were saying, all of that legal stuff, all of that legalistic burden, Jesus dispensed with. And he just said, following me is as simple as, and remember, he, he just gave them all kinds of examples. It's as simple as um, following a shepherd if you're a sheep who knows that the shepherd loves you. It's as simple as knowing that I am the light for your life that can tell you what's right, what's wrong. It was all of those things were lovely because they cleared away all of the, the trappings of the religions of the day. But now we come to what Luke has to say to us. And if, if I'm honest about wanting to clear away all of the trappings and get back to what Jesus said, this really bothers me. Does it bother you? Because if, if we want to hear him tell us what he came to tell us, this is it. So how do we sort this out? Are there two kinds of Christians? Is there the, the general Christian? And can you qualify for you know, a, a higher caliber of Christian that's called disciple? Because maybe that's what he's saying. Maybe he's saying it's fine for all of the thousands of you to keep hanging out with us, but for those who want the gold medal... For those who want to be on the list, here are the criteria. He doesn't seem to make the distinction. He just says, if you are going to follow me, here's what's required. Now, we are in a time of huge upheaval in the church. And, and I will fess up that on those five things, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, I'm on the apostle side. So um, new things and new ideas delight me. So I, I, I know that there are others who are more on the pastoral side who like things to be just the way they were, right? So something intrigues me about being in a different time than we've been before. But what we're being told is that there is an upheaval in the church the like of which we've not seen probably since the Reformation. The evidence of it for some of us, is to watch a generation that has walked away, our children. And writers now are saying, you know, you think that's a bad thing, 
But the future of the church is in that generation. Not to have them return to something, but have them express the faith that they will embrace in the day in which they are living, in which everything has changed. When the foundations are shaking, when notions of what's truth are up for grabs, and now observers are saying, don't despair of that generation. Learn from that generation. So whatever is happening, we need to go back together to Jesus and say, what did we not get right? Well, he might begin by saying, well, do you remember those decades of incredible church growth in the West? Do you remember that? Do you remember when almost everybody went to church, when um, going to church was very culturally acceptable? When the bands that played in church were pretty much as good as any band you're going to find anywhere else. Where worship music became a genre that people were listening to. When teachers who were the pastors of the churches were the best-selling authors of how to live a happy and successful life. Do you remember all that stuff? We might say, yeah, but that was good, wasn't it? When people came back to church, that was good, wasn't it? Well, Jesus says, when I was here and all of those people showed up and wanted to have some cool teaching and wanted to have a pretty spectacular show, do you know what I told them? I told them to go home. So, see, that has to grab my, because I'm guilty. I have been part of that movement, the the seeker movement, the attractive church movement, um, the, the movement that says it's not so terrible inside here. You might even feel comfortable when you come inside here. I'm, I'm part of that. And to a great measure, that was something blessed by God because people who had walked away walked back. But when they came back, maybe what we said to them wasn't quite right. Because Jesus says, uh, a crowd is not the evidence of success. That's frightening, isn't it? The majority is not necessarily right. And actually, he might open up the Old Testament scriptures and show us how many times the majority was actually wrong. That usually, in the kingdom of God, the majority is wrong, and the minority is right. What most people think is rarely um, the evidence of what's, in fact, right. It was always a minority that would actually win the day in terms of what God was interested in. So I don't, I don't like this passage at all because it disturbs me. And it disturbs me about us and about us that Jesus was awkward like this. And his awkwardness got even deeper with this. I mean, he's saying, do you hate your family? If not, beat it. Do you have a cross on your back? If not, go home. Are you willing to give up everything you have? If not, you can't follow me. And I'm going, hmm. I don't know, maybe I'm going back home. If, if, if that was the deal today, are you up for it? Husbands, do you hate your wives? See, we thought we weren't supposed to, right? Wives, do you hate your husbands? 
parents, do you hate your children? Children, do you hate your parents? Well, that's a given. You're supposed to for a while. You, get, you, you grow out of it, right? So what's he talking about? And this whole carrying my cross thing, um, for everybody that was listening, they knew what it meant when somebody was carrying a cross. Because the Romans executed hundreds of people. And the way that they made sort of a spectacle of these people was they made them carry their cross to the place of their execution. They had to carry their own cross. Even Jesus had to carry his own cross until he stumbled under its weight and they dragged somebody else in. So what Jesus is saying is, if, if you aren't willing to carry your cross, which means if you're not willing to die, you can't be my disciple. And if you're not willing to give up everything you own, can't be my disciple. So that, that just bothers me, and I don't know what to do with it. But I want to follow Jesus, because for the life of me, I can't find any other way to live life that is meaningful, purposeful, has an answer about what comes after this life. But if these are the terms, honestly, I want to know, is, is there another class that I can just sort of join up with and not have to pony up? Okay, we're done. No, we're not, we're, we're not done. So let me bring you back to what we've heard from Jesus through Luke's memory. Um, and let's find out what, what we're supposed to do with this. Because it's been good to hear Jesus say, no, it's not all of the burdensome stuff that they said was necessary. That's good. And a lot of what he says rings really true for us. You know, the whole thing about um, humility even though we, we might struggle about it, it does sound true that, that the best way to live is to live a humble life where, where you care more about others than you care about yourself. That sounds good and right. But it's part of a whole bundle of things that Jesus has been saying. So let's remember what they are um, as we talk about what Luke has told us. So um, it's the whole thing about getting the kingdom. So I want to get the kingdom. With Anne, we prayed this morning, your kingdom come. I, I pray every day that God's kingdom will come in my life and through us. Um, we want to experience the presence of God's kingdom, God's future here. And we want to be used by God for his kingdom to come for others. So we love the idea of God's kingdom. We love the hope of God's kingdom. But Jesus says, I, I'm going to fine-tune your understanding of what this kingdom is. I'm going to tell you how you can get it. So getting it, sort of a double entendre, getting it means getting it, being part of it. And getting it also means grasping what it's like when God's kingdom comes. So we need to grasp what it's like. And then we need to enter into it. We need to do whatever is called for, for God's kingdom to come. The first thing that we have been learning is that I can't get the kingdom without a values shuffle in my life. So um, stories about the, 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 the person who forgave debts 
and he forgave equally a person who owed him a terrible amount with someone who owed him just a bit. And the value of God's kingdom being a kingdom of grace and equity and um, abundance and all of that is a, is a different value system. My value system would say, no, if you owe more, um, it, it should pain you a little more than this person who doesn't owe very much at all, right? Bankers among us probably aren't going to just let people get away with millions of dollars of debt and, you know, make it easy for them, but, but you know, be hard on the people that own $20,000, right, Brent? He says, like, don't mess with banking. Just stay with what you're good at, right? A different value structure. The fig tree, um, where the guy says, look, I've, this fig tree, I've come back three years in a row, and it's not giving me any fruit. And the farmer says, well, let me work on it some more. And you think, well, no, my values are you've had enough chances, so you're done. God's values or the values in the kingdom are different from that. The midnight guest, where there's a person who shows up in the middle of the night and my neighbor comes knocking on my door and says, I don't have a loaf, can you get me some bread? And Jesus says, let me spin this story for you. What happens is the friend does give you that bread, not because of your friendship, but because you're just pestering. And they go, no, wait a minute, that, that, those aren't my values about prayer. But Jesus says that's the way it is. So my values about prayer are that I earn my opportunity to ask God for things. And on the basis of my relationship with him, I can have things. Jesus says, nah, if you pester him enough, you'll get what you want. They go, man. So in the kingdom, the values are different than mine. They're at least different. And I have to shuffle and figure out which way they're different. The next thing that um, we begin to get about the kingdom is that I can't get the kingdom without a view of my mortality. So here's this person who builds um, or says he's going to build more barns. And he's got this terrible dilemma because he's got way more crops than he knows what to do with. So he says, what am I going to do? This is awful. I'm so rich. It's awful. I know what I'll do. I'll just, you know, I'll get more vehicles for my investments. I'll get, I'll get made more ways to grow my money and so on. And God says, yep, that's fine, except tonight you're going to die. I won't get the kingdom if I don't get my mortality. If I don't have a daily understanding that this day I might die, I undoubtedly will not get the kingdom. bigger barns. Another thing that we learn from the stories is I can't get the kingdom without Jesus' return being on my radar. That Jesus might come back today. And so see, my even saying he might come back today, it's, in my mind it's like, no, I know he won't, but I'm just, I'll say he, he might. But he might. And if he came back today, what difference would that make? Or what would the possibility of his coming back today, what difference would, would that make in my life? I, I'm not going to get the kingdom if I don't have the urgency that Jesus is maybe coming back today. If he's coming back today, everything would really be different. The watchman um, is the story of those who, the homeowner's away at a wedding, comes home from the reception, and in fact, his guard is wide awake and fully clothed. He says, good. 
you know, come on, let's, let's have a cup of tea together. And he says, you know, blessed are those who are awake and watching. I can't get the kingdom by entitlement. And that's a big one for us because we have grown up in the church or we've grown up in the West or we've grown up in Christianity as had those who were mostly listening to Jesus. And he said, let me tell you a story. It's a story about a Samaritan. And they go, no, sorry, not interested. And we, we have this weird situation where the person who is most despised by the Jews is the one who helps the Jews. And in fact, um, in an answer to a question about faith, how do you get to the kingdom? Jesus says, I'll tell you, you, you behave like this. And he says, the person who was entitled to the kingdom isn't the person who got the kingdom. The Samaritan got the kingdom because he didn't just say what he believed. He lived what he believed. Not the Levite or the priest, but the Samaritan. So we asked ourselves questions like, would I help my enemy? Would I take help from my enemy? Could my enemy be right? Or am I sort of stuck on entitlement that says, no, I know I'm right. And this whole question about being right is going to be in play in this next decade or so. What does it mean to be right? Is it just something that's in your head? Is it something that's on your doctrinal statement? Or if Jesus were to talk to us, might he say it's when you do right? What if you don't believe right, but you do right? Hmm. Jesus said the Samaritan did right. Oh, you wanted to know how to get to heaven. Let me tell you about the Samaritan, the person you hate, who was wrong, who helped the person who was entitled, when those others who were entitled didn't help him. You tell me who's going to heaven. <clears throat> That's uncomfortable for us, isn't it? Because we've got it down. I, I've been part of two Billy Graham missions where the whole deal is if you believe this, you're right and you're entitled to a place in heaven. I don't not believe that. I believe that. But Jesus says, hmm, if you believe that but you don't do anything about it, are you still? So these are the reasons that I'm upset by what Jesus said. I can't get the kingdom without ridding myself of presumption, pride, and privilege. At the end of the day, says Jesus, we are unworthy servants. Even if you've done everything you're supposed to do, your master doesn't say, okay, you've worked really hard. Come on in, let me make you a cup of tea. Jesus says, no. At the end of the day, you're still an unworthy servant. Jesus, because he knew that he had come from the Father, that all authority was his, and that he was returning to the Father, he, because he knew that, he got on his knees with a towel and basin, and he washed his disciples' feet. I cannot get the kingdom if I'm holding on to presumption and entitlement and pride. I just can't get it. Whatever I do will be wrong. Whatever I think will be wrong. Whatever I will do is, will be fruitless for the kingdom. Because Jesus would not let up on this. Humility, servanthood are the rule of the kingdom. Nothing is owed you. Nothing is owed me. 
I, I cannot presume anything. I must always take the towel and the basin if I want to be sure that I'm behaving the way a person in the kingdom should. See, again, I like that Jesus said it's not the way the Pharisees spun it, but I'm not sure I like all of the stuff that Jesus says is required. But I'm also concerned that we maybe aren't getting the kingdom, so we have to go back to the drawing board and ask, well, what exactly did Jesus expect of us? And story by story, it's something, but when you pile these all up, it's an enormous weight that says the kingdom is something that I thought I understood. I haven't got a clue. I can't get the kingdom without giving up these things. I can't get the kingdom as a future idea. Dinner served. Come on in, you, you who have a ticket to heaven. It's time. They say, no, I just um, bought a cow. Can't come, just got married. Sorry, just... Jesus says, the banquet provider is furious when you say not now. So the kingdom is not something I have tucked away in my back pocket for when I die. It has to be right now because the invitation is now to live in the kingdom for the kingdom now. Or maybe lose my ticket. That's why I don't like this at all. Because I thought once I had my ticket... I may actually become a little bit sort of rebellious or inattentive, but it doesn't matter because i got my ticket in my back pocket. And Jesus says, the kingdom's not about a future idea. It's about now. Or else you just actually don't get the kingdom. I can't get the kingdom at my convenience. I think it's the story of counting the cost. Sort of the story about the banquet as well, but it's a story about counting the cost, where Jesus says, you, really, you want to follow me? Have you counted the cost? Because here are two situations. Here somebody goes and wants to build a building, and they don't have enough money. They get laughed at. Here's a king who wants to go to war, but he doesn't have enough soldiers. He gets laughed at, or he gets defeated. So how about you? You say you want to follow me, you say you want in my kingdom, well, are you willing to put up these things? Now, what do they mean? Because we have to measure them against the other things that were told in, in the Holy Scriptures, right? So um, I, I have no warrant to go out now and hate my family just from this story, do I? Because the rest of Scripture tells me about how to live as a loving husband and father and son and all of that. So is that, does it mean that? Um, does it mean that I have to, to die? I mean, is, is it going to be you know, a requirement that martyrdom is more than likely down the pathway for us? By the way, martyrdom is on the path of many, many, many of our brothers and sisters. And if nothing else comes out of this, paying attention to those around the world, our brothers and sisters that are dying for their faith today, should cause us to stop and think, wow, like that is faith. That is faith. Um, just go chase down the persecuted church 
and look at the number of places in the world where being a Christian, confessing Jesus, is a death warrant. See what has been happening. And respect that these are disciples. Respect that for them, these questions have been answered. And they have shown up with their crosses. And their blood is the blood that in heaven cries out to God that says, you have to put an end to all of this. Respect them and pray for them. Let them know that you know who they are and what they're, what they're doing. Give up all that I have. So here's what, what I think is, is required of us. We are to be people for whom relationships are second to the kingdom of God. Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? There's, there's a new family. There's a new kinship in, in the kingdom of God. It doesn't disregard the old kinship unless that old kinship calls our loyalty into question. So I do need to make a choice. I do need to be willing to die for my faith. And what I've heard from people who are suffering ar around the world is that they too were sure that if it was ever put to this, they would not be able to stand up for Christ. They're sure that they would have caved until the moment came where they found a courage by the Holy Spirit to own the name of Jesus. They're not superstars. They're people like you and me. And it has encouraged me to sit and listen to someone who had a gun pointed at him that said, you renounce your faith or I will kill you or your family. And at that moment, he had an empowerment by the Holy Spirit where he said, I will not re reject Jesus. And sometimes this person was let go, but sometimes that has cost, many times that has cost people their lives. But the Spirit of God has given them that courage, and he would give it to us. Give up everything we have. Um, well, Jesus also said, here's a, here's a story about somebody. Um, he was given this much to invest, just like other people, two or three others. And um, he was so afraid of the person coming back. And if he made a bad investment, he was afraid of the anger of the guy. And the guy came back and said, you could at least have invested that. You could have at least put it in the bank in an easy, easy, secure investment. Why did you not do anything with it? So apparently Jesus is not against investment and wealth and all of the rest. But what he is against is people like the rich farmer who said, here's all that matters. I need to get things set up because success and wealth and riches is everything. And Jesus is saying, no. In fact, if, if you want to know whether or not you qualify for the exacting standards of the kingdom, would you be willing to give up everything you have? If not, don't tell me you want to follow me. Would I? Would you? How many are glad you came today? Oh, well, you, mar you martyrs. <laughs> I love um, Juan Ortiz's um, book called Disciple. And I, I think he gets it right when he says this. He says, a man sees a pearl. And he says to the merchant, I want this pearl. How much is it? The seller says, well, it's very expensive. 
How much? Well, it's a lot. Well, do you think I could buy it? Yeah, anybody could buy it. But you said it was very expensive. I did. How much? Everything you have, says the seller. Everything? All right, I'll buy it. Okay, let's see what you have. Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good, $10,000. What else? That's all. Nothing more? I have a few dollars in my pocket. How much? Let's see, $123. That's mine, too. Good. What else do you have? That's all. Nothing else. Well, where do you live? Well, yeah, in, in my house. Oh, yeah, I have a house. Okay, that's mine, too. My house? Okay. Where, where, where am I going to sleep, then? In my camper? You have a camper. That's mine, too. Yeah. What else? That's it. How did you get here? Well, yeah, my car. You have a car? Uh-huh. Two. They're mine. Okay. Look, you've taken my money, my house, my camper, my cars. Where's my family going to live? Oh, your family. They're mine as well. Tell me about your family. I have a wife and three kids. They're mine, too. Suddenly, the seller exclaims, oh, I almost forgot, you yourself as well. Everything becomes mine. Wife, children, house, money, cars, and you. Then he goes on. Now listen, I will allow you to use these things for the time being, but don't forget that they're mine, just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up, because now I am the owner. Hate your family, Pick up your cross, give everything away. But Jesus says, all right, I'll cut you some slack. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a break. It's only when I need them that I will call for them. Until then, you can use them. Until then, you can enjoy your family. Until then, you can enjoy your life. Until then, you can enjoy your possessions. But when I need them. Don't ever say no. So that is the life of a disciple. It's to say, today, Jesus might call on something from me, and I will be holding it loosely so that he can have it. And Jesus then might say, okay, we're good. We're good. Father, I pray that you can... Enlarge our hearts, enlarge our capacity to know that we do, do want this pearl. Father, we pray that you will uh, loosen our grasp. And we thank you that, in fact, what you will do is you will sanctify our relationships with our families with our lives and with what we have because we will see them more clearly now. And we pray, Father, that you will help us, in fact, to love the Lord Jesus and to follow him uh, into his kingdom. In his name we pray. John 6, verse 66 says this, At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and said, 
are you also going to leave? Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, and we balk, and he says, are you going to leave? And we catch ourselves on, we say, where are we going to go? Where are you going to go? Because right? he's the one who has the words of eternal life. 